Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studio in Alpharetta, it's time for Profit Sense with Bill McDermott. Good morning. Welcome to Profit Sense. This podcast dives into the stories behind some of Atlanta's successful businesses and business owners and the professionals that advise them. We help local business leaders get the word out about the important work they're doing to serve their market, their community, and their profession, as well as discuss current issues that business owners are facing today across a wide variety of industries. I'm your host, Bill McDermott, and this show is presented by The Profitability Coach. When business owners want to increase their profitability, they often don't have the expertise to know where to start or what to do. I leverage my knowledge and relationships from 32 years as a banker and 14 years as a business coach to identify the hurdles getting in the way and create a plan to deliver profitability they never thought possible. We have three great guests on the show today. I'm so excited. Richard Grove with Wall Control. Richard, welcome to Profit Sense. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. Looking forward to chatting. Dave Wallens with Exploring Inc. Dave, so glad you're here this morning. It's great to be here, Bill. Thanks. And Christopher Allen with Valet Oil Change. Welcome to Profit Sense. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Richard, I'm going to start with you. So you and I have have certainly known each other several years. Uh, Wall Control is a family-owned and operated uh, brand of wall storage and organization systems. Uh, And your background uh, was in engineering, but what you enjoy most now is is brand building through the relationships and the creative marketing that you do. And so I kind of want to start out really, um, you know, based on uh, our LinkedIn messages, how has managing your supply chain been impacted by COVID before, uh, during, and after? Yeah, it's been uh – to say it's been a challenge would definitely be an understatement. It's, I mean, COVID was uh, completely disruptive for everybody. And one of the hardest things was just forecasting and planning for it. It was, you know, there, there was no rule book for it. There was no data for it. And um, kind of the short version, we saw as soon as COVID hit, we saw uh, an immediate pullback um, from and the other thing too about our product. We sell two directly to end users, to uh, retailers, to industrial suppliers, all these, you know, a lot of different customers we service. And so we see a a very wide swath swath of like different purchasing behavior and everybody pulled back, like immediately pulled back. And so, but then after stimulus started flowing um, and people, I think kind of got used to the new normal, nobody was going on vacation. So everybody started doing like these work from home projects. They started taking up hobbies like gardening and woodworking And we saw just a boom. I mean, 2020 ended up being a huge year for us. It was so slow at the beginning, so crazy at the end. And then it's like, how do you plan for, you know, the year after, how do you forecast for it? Cause again, nothing, nothing was normal that year. So, uh, we saw, uh, material costs skyrocketing scarcity became a major issue with getting steel, uh, plastics, resins, those, those kind of things. And so really we were just, I tell people every quarter it was like some different challenge, very unique from the one before. Uh, then we got into, you know, uh, workforce trying to bring in, bring in and retain people. Um, so it was just, it was just one challenge after another. And then now kind of that was 2020, 2021. Um, and then this year it's kind of been, we're seeing, it seems like our kind of retail network, they're trying to adjust. I think they were working off of forecasting from maybe 2020, 2021. 
and a little over leveraged when it come to, came to inventory. So we're seeing them, you know, say a, a retailer used to try to keep uh, eight to 10 week supply on hand of material. Now they're drawing that down to maybe one to two, two to three weeks. And that kind of whiplash effect, we're trying to handle that, you know, because we have to order material quarters in advance. And so how much do we bring in? How much are they going to want to bring in? So it's just been a, it's really been a game of uh, kind of whack-a-mole with different problems sure. and riding the wave of herky-jerky, too much, too little, you know, trying to figure out what right size is. So Yeah, yeah the economy has been such uh, fits and starts. For sure. Yeah. And, uh, and, and overreactions, too, to, to that. So, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We're talking this morning with uh, Richard Grove, the CEO, COO of Wall Control. Uh, Richard came to work for the family business, DeKalb Tool and Die, in 2008 as a mechanical engineer. Uh, at the time that uh, wall control was a little more than a small uh, side hustle for DeKalb Tool and Die. Uh, shortly after Richard arrived in 2008, the economy took a turn for the worse, but much of the work of DeKalb Tool and Die was holding on to, uh, was leaving the shop to go to South America, China, and some other offshore. Uh, although today, wall control is responsible for the employment of 50 plus employees and occupies a 60,000 square foot physical footprint. So lots of success. And of course, Richard, you're the third generation, if I'm not mistaken, in the business as well. Yes, that's correct. And I want to uh, kind of talk about those fits and starts. Um, You know, inflation uh, is front and center, uh, the Fed's meeting. And I want to talk about what you're seeing with inflationary factors, uh, raw materials, for example. Yeah. So we saw... um it seemed like it happened for us pretty early on. I feel like I was saying, you know, and before people were talking about inflation, we saw it firsthand as a manufacturer. So, I mean, if you just, if you're listening and you Google, uh, Fred sheet steel index, um, and look that up, that's what we were dealing with and still dealing with it. So it shot up real fast and it's kind of stayed up there and it's start, we're starting to see it come back down on raw material, but only like just very recent. And the problem is we have to order, you know, we'll order, hundreds of thousands of pounds of steel a quarter in advance. And so that high cost that we paid is still working its way through the supply chain. So to say when it will end, I'm not sure. I can say that our costs we see over the horizon, it looks like that will slow down in the future. But again, with, with forecasting, we're sitting on, you know, tons of steel, literally tons of steel at at very high price points that we had brought in during during peak COVID time because we're trying to plan and we're you know, we're forecasting for what, for what we, what we think we might sell through. And again, going back to, to the earlier point, when retailers change what they're bringing in, we have to sit on it. You know, we've got to inventory and hold on to that. And you know, that, that sits on our balance sheet until we can get rid of it. So, um, yeah, so we're seeing it. We're, we're, uh, we're encouraged because it definitely looks like it's going to go down. We haven't seen it go down yet, but it definitely looks like that's what the case is going to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we're all, uh, we're all out there trying to, trying to figure things out one day at a time. Exactly. It's, and, it's that, and that's barring any, you know, you know, steel is very, very heavily tied to the cost of petroleum. So, you know, there's world events that are happening that could change, you know, I could, we could walk out of here today, something could happen. And then I'm like, Oh, well, going back up again, you know, so there's just no telling kind of where we're going to be in a quarter from here. So, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a recurring theme that's kind of, uh, coming up in our, in our discussion right now and planning and, and forecasting, and we're coming up on the the beginning of a new year. Uh, I would like to ask you, uh, one more question on the economy and then I'll, uh, I'll switch topics on you. 
But what have you been seeing with regard to economic headwinds and challenges? Uh, certainly supply chain is one. Are there others? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, inflation's obviously weighing heavily on people's pocketbooks and their ability to, you know, to spend. The other thing we saw, again, going back to 2020 and 2021, people were kind of, you know, in their own garages, so to speak, doing their own hobbies, and then they kind of wanted to travel more. So that discretionary income started flowing, you know, in other different, in other directions. But um, we're encouraged. And again, going back to forecasting, uh, John and I were having a conversation about this, you know, before we came on, basically what we're trying to do, we have kind of a goal where we want to land, maybe, you know, 15, 20% year of year growth is good for us from, uh, just, we've been doing this for a long time. It's robust growth for the size we are. And so what we're really doing is we're going back to 2019, the last time it was quote normal. And we're, we're saying, what would that look like in 2022? Okay. Well, that was what our goal was. We got our goal this year. That's great. Let's extrapolate that in 2023. We're going to plan for that. That's going to be our goal. And then we'll see where we land when it comes, you know, when that happens. So, and I will say this too, this was interesting. Um, we were hoping again, we're, we sell, uh, to the end user directly to the end user and through retailers. And so we were hoping for a flat black Friday, cyber Monday week, um, flat over what it was 2021, but it was actually a record week. So we were up 20% over where we were last year. And we were surprised by that. We wow. were, we were not expecting. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was, and there wasn't really any, you know, we didn't, it, there was no special sauce or anything we were rolling out. It just happened to be that. So that was encouraging that it seems like even though these, these bigger box retailers are being a little more uh, conservative with their inventory, it seems like the consumer is still pretty strong and still their purchasing behavior hasn't changed a ton, you know, from the previous year. Yeah. And I think too, Richard, uh, whenever there's economic uncertainty, I think there's a flight to quality uh, and the quality products and services that uh, wall control delivers and, and the longevity of the company, I would say uh, contribute a lot, a lot towards that. Yeah. Appreciate that bill. And we, we try to have, um, we, we try to have a quality is always front and center, but we try to have a price point for everybody, you know? So if you want to do a $2,000 garage overhaul storage, we got you covered. If you want to, you know, if you got 60 bucks to spend, but just want something nicer and easier then we, we can take care of you as well. So kind of wherever you fall on the spectrum, we have a solution. Yeah. I would say that's from DIY to the extreme makeover, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's some, I mean, there's some crazy installations we've seen and then, you know, from down to one little simple panel in a, you know, studio apartment in New York for a sewing center, you know, it's like, there's all just a huge wider range of uh, uses. Yeah. We're talking this morning with uh, Richard Grove with wall control for years, wall control storage systems have been and continue to be the industry leader when it comes to pegboard tool storage and organization. And for good reason, um, you know, they uh, provide high quality products. Uh, they have quality, not only that, but also versatility value and uh, customer service. Uh, I want to kind of switch talking a little bit about your industry and maybe uh, the manufacturing industry in general. Uh, what are you hearing from other industry leaders about their experiences managing their own business in the current economic climate? Yeah, they're kind of, I mean, they're kind of tracking the same as us. Um, we were, we have, and that's a great question because we, we manufacture for a lot of different businesses too on the, on the manufacturing side, but we're still into that space. And so really what we're seeing on that side of it is a, a skill shortage. So, um, we were just in a meeting a few weeks ago with, uh, 
you know, huge industrial supplier of different parts. Can't say too much about it, but basically their problem is just people and they're, they're outsourcing a ton of work just because they can't, they can't hire and they can't retain and people aren't going into the trades like tool and die and metalworking that they used to. So, um, really I think macro going forward, that's going to be, that's going to be the big challenge is the people to actually run the machines and operate the equipment. Um, and, you know, if you're listening and you are, a, you know, a high school student or you have a high school student or, you know, if you have any interest in going into the trades, I would highly recommend it because it's, I mean, there's never been a more lucrative time to kind of get into it and talk about job security. I mean, we're hiring and that, another thing we're hiring, like we're, we'll always take those skilled positions. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the next shortage, and we've already been through the whole, you know, uh, workforce challenges, but I really think a skill, the, the skill positions is going to be a, a big challenge in the years to come. At least that's what we're seeing in our space. Yeah. And I think others are seeing that too. I think for a long period of time, uh, high school counselors were saying college is the yeah. end all be all, uh, the trades suffered, uh, because of that. And, but I do see a, a recurrence of, uh, people getting involved in, in skilled trades. Uh, when's the last time a plumber showed up on time to fix a problem at someone's yeah. house. And, and so there's, there's just huge demand it's, uh, yeah. for skilled labor. I will say one other point about that, which is kind of cool. We, we work with our, our brand partners and they're, you know, they're skilled. A lot of them are skilled workers, skilled woodworkers, skilled metal workers. And it's cool to see like these people like kind of blowing up on Instagram and YouTube with the skills. Like you, to your point, like people thought, Oh, I'm going to go to college. That's what you're supposed to do. But no, you can be like, an influencer and get monetized by social platforms while you're doing skilled work. Um, and I think that's really encouraging for like, again, kids coming up, they have these role models that they look at and they're, you know, they're not, Oh, they didn't go to college. They did this. It's like, well, I want to be like that. Cause that's just way cooler than college and the rest of it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, closing comments, uh, again, uh, themes of planning during, uh, uh, uh uncertain economic time. Um, all of the there's a lot of unknowns out there today. So I, I would like to understand how is wall control forecasting for the future, uh, given all of those unknowns today. Yeah, it's kind of one quarter at a time. It's kind of what we you know what we're looking long term, and we're also looking short term. I mean that sounds obvious, but basically, again, so for 2023, we we kind of have a feel for what we'd like to hit. We'd like to hit that percentage growth year over year. Um, but the other, there are some variables in there, like new product rollout, things like that, that will drive sales. So it's, it's hard. It's really hard to predict. So our, we kind of are setting a baseline and then we'll kind of spot by, and I'm speaking specifically for like a thing like we're doing where you need X amount of raw material to create X amount of parts. So we kind of set a baseline. We make sure we have that on hand and then we'll spot by steel and parts to supplement that. Should we see an increase? And then if we see a decrease, I mean, then it's kind of the obvious uh, supply and demand situation. We we might be running some sales, you know, it's like to try to to try to unload some of this inventory. But I feel like we're we're getting a a pretty good handle on what we have on hand, and we're also working very closely with our retailers and trying to get a feel for what's happening on that side of the, the wall. Like we used to, we would all we always had a good relationship with our buyers, but even more so now we're trying to get a little more insight out of them with like, you know, we know you can't say what sales are coming up or when, you know, this kind of thing is going to happen, but you know, we're, we're trying to buy steel two months in advance or two quarters in advance. Could you give us a little bit of insight into what's happening? So 
really, I guess all that I boil down to like just trying to, to beef up our relationships with folks in the space that we work with. So we can all work together to like make more informed decisions going forward. Cause you really have to have those, you know, eyes on the ground to know what they're seeing so you can make decisions for your own business. So, um, I guess that would be my advice to anybody in whatever your space you're in. Now's the time to strengthen your relationships with those in the space. So you can collectively kind of get a better forecast for what's ahead. Yeah. We all need to stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us, don't we? Yes. Um, for that potential employee out there that might be uh, wanting to hear more about wall control or that potential client, what's the best way for them to get in touch with either you or wall control, Richard? Yeah. So wall control is pretty easy. Wallcontrol.com um, at wall control on all social handles uh, to the manufacturing side. I'll give them a plug to decabtool.com. That's our, our um, decab tool and die is the name of the company where we manufacture all of our wall control. And then I on social channels, I'm Mr. Wall Storage on Twitter and Instagram. So feel free to reach out, you know, whatever channel works best for you and we can get you to the right person. Richard, it's been great having you on Profit Sense. Thanks so much for sharing uh, not only your experience, but also your expertise. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. And now we're going to move to Dave Wall. And Dave, I've really been looking forward to this interview. You and I go way back to uh, Kennesaw State's Entrepreneurship Center, uh, uh, I, I remember those days fondly and, and certainly whenever, uh, whenever you spoke or shared words of wisdom, uh, I, uh, I listened intently. Uh, when I look at what you've accomplished, two words come to mind, uh, first entrepreneur and second innovator. I mean, you've grown exploring to a 200 employee company in three locations. You've been in the Inc 500 and 5,000 list six times. Have you always been an entrepreneur or is that something that you've kind of developed into over time? Well, Bill, I guess I was born. They slapped me on the butt and they said, you're going to be an entrepreneur. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's hard to say I was born into it. Let's just say that I grew into it out of necessity. You know, uh, when I became an entrepreneur uh, back in 1983, when I started my first company at 21, I think in 1983, to be an entrepreneur meant that you couldn't find your, a job. So uh, that's how I became an entrepreneur. But today uh, we see that pyramid kind of flipped and everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I'm proud of the journey and what I've learned. And I've, I've basically learned uh, most of my business acumen coming from the streets. Yeah, well, and I certainly want to hear more about that. Uh, so you've done uh, Harry Potter, the exp- expedi- exhibition, excuse me. Uh, you've done Super Bowls. You've done Disney play areas. Those types of jobs only come to the best of the best. Um, what's your secret to success? Well, first of all, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, and if you don't mind me uh, regressing a little bit, it's good to see you again, too. And congratulations on three years. It's hard to believe. I know when you started your podcast and amazing where you've come to. So yeah, thank you for that. Good to see you back. And, um, you know, uh, the secret sauce is very simple. We have one philosophy in the company, and that's the customer's the center of our universe. Uh, I learned that early on in my business career. Uh, uh, very simple philosophy. Everybody can follow it. And that that's excellence, right? And, and we want to be excellent at all levels because that's what the customer expects and that drives us. So uh, that's really been the secret sauce for me. And everybody aligns with that. And then, you know, when you have a culture of excellence, people want to be the best. And you combine those two things together and you get a really powerful group uh, and a really amazing culture. So we're proud of what we've been able to achieve. Yeah. And when you mentioned the word culture, I have to go back to uh, uh, Peter Drucker uh, was famous uh, back in the day. I'm dating myself by bringing up his name, but he said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. 
you can have the best strategy in the world, but you don't. If you don't have the culture, uh, you're not going to achieve. So I wonder if I could just go down that trail a moment. Um, you've built a great culture in your organization. How did you cultivate that over time? Uh, by failing miserably so for a very long time, to be honest with you. You know, you hear that all the time. And as a young entrepreneur, that was always my my desire was to have a company filled with employees that could aspire and, and grow to be the best they can be. And, you know, when we're young and small, we're running around. And, and as I just said, the customer is the center of the universe. And when a customer spoke up, my attention was on a customer. And obviously, predominantly at the early days, handling most of the sales, operationally, then you take your eye off your employees. Um, and so staying believable was a real challenge because things come up every single day. You're dealing with a customer and those employees really don't get the uh, TLC that they really deserve. Um, I learned that the hard way. And even though my desire was to have, uh, obviously, uh, all the values in the world to present to them, the first time they needed something and I wasn't there, didn't answer it the right way or didn't pay attention to them closely enough, it becomes unbelievable and you really break down culture. And, uh, and I saw that happening within my own company for a long time. And then as we started to scale, we were bringing managers on that were true managers. And that was started the evolution of uh, really executing on the desire. And so it's been a, a process and uh, proud today that with the executive management team that we now have, uh, a lot of credit, if not most of the credit is given to them for really being uh, employee centric. And uh, today in, in my role as CEO, I call myself the uh, chief employee officer uh, because that's really my role is to make sure that I pay attention and stay close to the employees and know how much I, uh, I appreciate them and how much they mean to our organization. Yeah, those are uh, those are great words of wisdom. Thanks for sharing that. We're talking this morning with Dave Wallens, who's the CEO of Exploring Inc., the parent-based company of several unique trailblazing Atlanta-based companies supporting the event, trade show, experiential entertainment, and flooring industries. Dave's also co-founder of Exploring Digital, a new creative studio, content creation, and technology company. And so, Dave, I do want to switch the discussion to uh, you as co-founder of Exploring Digital. Um, what was the inspiration for creating that company? Uh, and this is kind of a two-parter. So tell me about the inspiration. Then sure. now, how how's it going? <laughs> well, nothing like doing a startup when you're 60. You know, I figure, <laughs> well, we need another challenge. So, uh, you know, look, it's been exciting. It's been fun. It's been challenging. All those things put together in a real uh, a difference between the current business that I uh, that I have in this and the new entity that we have in the way of it's structured and how we're growing and developing it. Uh, but it happened out of uh, development of um, my Exploring Inc. We were working on a project. The project didn't uh, grab legs. The client decided not to move forward. We loved the design that we did, and that's what we do. We we take uh, uh, concepts and then bring them to life. And, and in this case, we uh, invented something, and we said, you know what? This could be pretty cool. This was about three years ago. Uh, so we wound up going down the path of, of patenting it, and it was a, a VR theater at the time. And so that was the start of it. And uh, not knowing much about the digital world, um, we had to learn it pretty quickly. So we were mapping digital content in, inside of our uh, our VR theater, which really was kind of a trade show exhibit in its own right. So we use a lot of our past uh, flooring products, wall products, graphic products to kind of come up with this invention. 
wound up getting a patent within about a year, which was very fast. And in the VR space, is very tough to do. Uh, we applied for our, our trademark of Megaverse and uh, wound up getting that approved about 30 days ago. So uh, we have a, the registered trademark Megaverse. Um, and then, you know, Zuckerberg did us a great job in uh, 2021 in the summer when he brought Metaverse to the forefront and digital technology. It really started to uh, grow what we were doing. And uh, we're using VR in for entertainment in this virtual reality theater that we patented. And then we have moved that now into training and education. So uh, it's fascinating space. Uh, along this path, we wound up acquiring our a content developer who's a studio. We have a whole movie studio now down in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, believe it or not, uh, got into the movie business. Who would have ever thought? But uh, it's where our, our developers are down there, our programmers are down there, and and we're creating some uh, amazing content in VR. And then the movie industry and VR is kind of colliding. They're using the same software, Unity or Unreal Engine, to create these movies. Now it's digital. We have an LED screen down there, and so we're doing our own virtual production. So it's really been an evolution in a very short period of time. Wow, that is a great story. And if I could just give you a follow-up question, with the customer being the center of the universe, my guess is that uh, the customer took you uh, into that space. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. You know, being creative in your own business is important. Being an innovator in your own business is extremely important. And so things happen. I've been an innovator in uh, in our flooring group from day one when we first started that in Brewmark. Um, and that's what differentiated us, that we were willing to bring products to the market. Um, I am not an industrial designer and um, probably not the right person to bring a well-seasoned product into the market. We would come in because we saw a vision of what could be. We packaged it up, did the best we could, and when we didn't succeed as well as we should have, we adjusted until we made it perfect. That's the kind of the mentality we bring to these types of environments. So innovation is really important. We just saw an opportunity. We jumped on it, and we developed it over time. And, and this one, we had to be pretty precise. So uh, it's, it's been fascinating to see. And in this space, you know, it didn't exist. Uh, we're multi-people in a room that are able to interact with each other, uh, untethered, and free walking. So it's really a, an amazing little environment that, uh, that it is. Yeah. So, uh, growth is certainly a, a hallmark of your business and, and you've had a tremendous success with growth of your companies. Um, I have a saying that growth always requires cash and growth always increases complexity. Uh, so I'm wondering what have been some of the challenges of growth over your career? Yeah, thanks for that reminder, Bill. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, that's the heartburn. Um, you know, growth for the sake of growth. You know, we as entrepreneurs in the early days, we always look at revenue, and that's our target. Let's grow, let's grow, let's grow, and and um, and that's how I you know really approached my business and really didn't look at the profitability side the way I should have. Uh, so bringing on employees was a gut feeling. It was not a calculated, uh, really collaborative. A conversation with accounting and operations to really make the right decision at the right time. Um, but as I learned and succeeded and failed along those paths, we got better at it, brought in a financial person who is now my CFO when he was 25, and he's done an amazing job of helping me guide the company at all levels. And then we brought in a COO uh, about eight years ago. Uh, he has now been promoted to president of the company and he's running all the operations and, and, and leading the company these days. And uh, so, you know, you learn um, at every level of what you have to do with employees, but uh, capital is extremely important. 
and cash flow is even more critical. So uh, we've learned those lessons along the way, and it's been a challenge. I mean, there have been days where it's like, hey, uh, you know, how are we gonna how are we gonna fund this growth? We're starting to grow too fast. And actually, it was never too fast growth when you're when you're smaller. And so like, oh, we'll figure that out. Right. Uh, so that's the approach we took. But now we're very much calculated in what we're doing and making sure that we we don't make mistakes along the way and and react as quickly as we can. Bring in the right people. Uh, but we're short, you know, right now with the employee situation is tough out there, even in our core business. Uh, we're probably a good 30, 40 employees shy of where we really want to be. So, you know, we understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Finding good talent out there is so, so difficult right now. So what I want to ask is for that uh, new entrepreneur out there, uh, what advice would you give uh, that entrepreneur that wants to grow? Oh, boy. Um you know, the, the first advice is set your vision and make sure you really understand what it is you want to accomplish um, and and then stay determined to go after that dream and that vision um, and align yourself with it. Um, you got to be have a good plan in your head of how you're going to get there and then execute on that. Uh, obviously, enough capital is always, you know, enough money you could do anything, um, I guess. So, But, you know, in my world, it's been a battle to find that capital. So, uh, it's it's always a challenge. I say learn all aspects of your business as well. You got to understand the marketing. You got to understand operations. You got to understand the accounting. When you understand enough of them together, then you could really be impactful on the whole business structure. And if you don't know something, ask or hire somebody who has that expertise that that you could verify is the right expertise. And uh, and so those are some of the advice that I give a young entrepreneur. It's uh, it's not an easy path, but it's a unbelievably rewarding when you could achieve and be successful in it. So for our listeners out there, wise words from uh, Dave Wallens of Exploring Inc. Uh, Dave, I know also you're a big believer in giving back to the community. I know you're very active in trade associations. Uh, You and I first met at Kennesaw State when they created their entrepreneurship center. Uh, I know your involvement with KSU has has even grown since then. Uh, But talk about some of the things uh, in community service that you've accomplished and are most proud of. Yeah, absolutely. And enjoyed those days working on the Entrepreneurship Center when it didn't exist and we put it together. And like good entrepreneurs, Bill, we actually uh, built an amazing Entrepreneurship Center in the early days and supporting the professors out there and directors. It was an honor to work with you on it and all the entrepreneurs around Atlanta that got involved to support that. Today, it's a thriving uh, uh a major uh, for the university is entrepreneurship. Uh, had the first major in the state of Georgia, which is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're doing great work and well beyond what what I ever imagined. And I'm honored to be a trustee up there. I've uh, I really enjoyed getting to work with the university, uh, especially one like KSU is very entrepreneurial minded, and they do a great job with uh, really activating their students. They have a philosophy: the student is the center of their universe. I didn't come up with it; it is what it is. <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, I support it. So Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a, uh, it's a beautiful thing and everybody is aligning around that. And, and you can tell by the students that come out of their program, but I'm, I'm, uh, you know, my give back is just, uh, maybe it's inherent in, in most entrepreneurs. I don't know. I, I see it cause I see so many that do give back. Uh, and I just think it's in our DNA. Um, I've had the privilege of being involved with many organizations, one in my own industry called, uh, the experiential designers and producers association. Uh, we started a foundation, uh, that was really in turmoil. We wound up building it up, and now we have a million-dollar endowment that we built, and uh, uh, we'll have funds to give to the 
uh, the individuals, the employees within our industry for perpetuity probably. So uh, we give scholarships and help families in need that have had catastrophe, uh, whether it's sickness or accidents, things like that. It's really amazing to see that. Uh, I am past president now, proud to say that after two years, uh, a couple of weeks ago is my my service was done as president uh, for CEO NetWeavers. Sion uh, is a pay-it-forward organization. That's all we do, um, and we do it in a, in a variety of different ways through mentorship and uh, and the likes of helping each other. Uh, we have an inflection point program where we help entrepreneurs or any company that's kind of stuck, help them get unstuck, and uh, we do that at free of charge. So it's an amazing program that we help these companies and have seen uh, over 75 companies come through that program, so it's pretty impressive. Uh, and then I do a Dream Builders, uh, or we do a Dream Builders program. Yeah, for you, for you uh, entrepreneurs out there, get away from saying the word I. Uh, I used to say I all the time, and I, you get, I get stuck in that too, uh, even today. But it's always a we. Um, the team is everything. It's not me any, any longer. That was the early days. Today it's all about us. Uh, but uh, we as a company made a commitment to giving back through uh, our Dream Builders program. You know, one of the things that, that we see, education is challenged today um, to teach uh, the soft skills as we hear it really, you know, how to think, how to problem solve, how to present. Those things are, are not really taught in school and, and really in the ways that we believe it. So we, we decide to open up the company inside out, let students come through our facility, talk to all of our executives, the CEO, myself, the president of the company, whatever uh, manager, executive manager, and put the folks in front of them that they can actually ask their questions about and understand where value is built in an organization. Uh, we've had probably close to a thousand students come through the facility uh, wow. through a tour, and uh, we're really proud of that. And it's open to any you know, high school and uh, university. Uh, you may set up an appointment with uh, with our team and and bring your students through and let them have an unbelievable experience. Well, let me just say, wow, Dave! Not only uh, have you built a great company, but you have uh, uh, talked about team. Uh, team for me uh, is an acronym together. Everyone accomplishes more, uh, and you certainly have accomplished uh, a lot through the through the teams that you've built. Whether it's uh, inside Exploring Inc. or uh, in your community service, so so congratulations. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. If someone wants to get in touch with you, maybe that uh, I heard thirty or forty employees that you might be wanting to hire, uh, <laughs> or uh, someone who's really looking for some some trade show support. What's what's the best way for them to get in touch with you or Exploring Inc. Sure. Exploring Inc.'s uh, website is exploring.com. We have a careers page on there. Just go there. You can uh, reach out through uh, our team uh, through that. You can reach me directly at uh, dwallens at exploring.com. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, David Wallens. You could find me there. It's probably the best place to hit me up. And uh, I am pretty accessible, so uh, accessible. So feel free to reach out at any time. I'd love to, love to connect and, uh, and uh, we'll make ourselves available. And Dave, uh, I've been looking forward to this interview. Thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing your experience. Um, you're a uh, just an outstanding innovator and entrepreneur. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to know you. Thank you. It's my honor, Bill, and a, a, an honor to be here, man. Really love what you're doing. Thank you. you bet. We're going to switch the conversation now to Christopher Allen with Valet Oil Changes. Christopher is founder and CEO. Um, Christopher, I just want to kind of kick off um, – What's your story, and uh, why did you start Valet Oil Changes? There's actually <clears throat> quite a lot to the story, um, including meeting my girlfriend out of state, uh, picking up trash at apartments part-time as a side job, 
and then also working in outside sales for three years. But ultimately what kind of led to the creation of the company is I was driving so much down to Florida to see my girlfriend every week. Um, six hour drive. I started keeping oil change supplies in my trunk and I uh, ended up driving to Texas. I did an oil change in a rest stop. Um, I did one on the side of the highway uh, and I did one in a, in a hotel parking lot. And I kind of can, this idea kind of hit me at that point. I was like, you know what, maybe I should start doing this um, because it's a market that I don't think has been filled very much. Yeah. What a, what a great idea. And uh, so the clients that you work with, do you work with individuals, businesses, both? Individuals, fleets, and offices. Um, so I work with individuals throughout Metro Atlanta area plus, is kind of what I call it. Depends um, how far outside our official service area that I'll go. Um, so that's kind of space by base with Metro Atlanta, Johns Creek, Roswell, Alpharetta, Milton, all those areas. And then for fleets, it's sort of a case-by-case basis. I've gone as far as coming. Um, I have one I'm talking to in Valdosta. Um, but they're a significantly larger fleet. So, and then office buildings is kind of the same rule of thumb as uh, fleets. Yeah. And so I can't tell you how many times in, in my own vehicle, you know, I'm looking up at that little sticker saying, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm overdue for an oil change. Um, but I don't, I don't have time, you know, I'm, I'm busy. And so the concept of you coming to the, uh, to the individual or to the business, uh, for their oil change is just, it's, you know, it's awesome. What was, what was part of the inspiration to create a, I'll bring it to you versus you have to go uh, wait somewhere to get your oil changed? Well, so I started, you know, I was driving a ton. I was, I think there was a month I did three oil changes at like 5,000 miles each in one month. Um, and then I was doing that valet trash job. Valet living is the name of the company. And I was picking up trash people's front doors and I decided, you know, maybe I should do this uh, as kind of a side hustle. And then I was like, well, what am I going to call it? And the name Valley Oil Changes popped into my head and it kind of spiraled into a business out of that. And then I tested it, see if anybody actually cared to have it done that way and discovered that everyone really liked the idea. And so I just went for it. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a great idea. And I know you mentioned just a moment ago uh, the areas that you serve are, are around Atlanta. Uh, do you have dreams about expanding uh, geographically? Absolutely. My goal is to take the company to every state in the country. Wow. Wow. And uh, talk a little bit about uh, maybe the business model, how you might achieve that. Growing, you mean? Mm-hmm. So primarily, I think we're going to focus on large cities in each state. Obviously, you know, rural areas benefit from a couple of things. One, they tend to be a little more self-sufficient people, but also in smaller cities and smaller towns, the shops that here in Atlanta screw you over will are, are higher quality work in those smaller places because everyone tends to know each other or they care more. And so they kind of benefit. So I think focusing on major cities where people have the most pain when the wait times, most people they have to deal with. Um, and also that concern of, am I getting screwed or not? Sure. Sure. That makes sense. We're talking this morning with Christopher Allen, founder and CEO of Valet Oil Changes. Uh, Valet Oil Changes is an on-site oil change company, uh, saving busy people their valuable time by bringing the oil change to them. And uh, as Christopher mentioned, they uh, service individuals throughout Atlanta, Roswell, Alpharetta, Johns Creek, and Norcross, also serving fleets and offices in the same areas. And so I've found over time, Christopher, that people – by differences 
not similarities. So I want to um, maybe ask you, how do you feel you differentiate yourself from your competitors? The primary differentiator is definitely going to be customer service. Um, The customer service is absolutely the utmost because no one really, no one's interacting with the oil change. Everyone's interacting with me or my employees. And so ultimately that experience is what defines their experience with us. And so even outside of the fact that we use high quality materials, if the customer interaction is high quality and they enjoy it or they like it or it's informative, they're most likely to have a positive experience. Yeah. I think we're, uh, we're, we're onto something here. We've got a recurring theme here that, uh, uh, two of our interviews and, and I know, uh, uh, Richard, so I can make it a, a unanimous three. I'll put the customer as the the center of their universe, and that's really been a big key to your success. It sounds like. Oh, absolutely. And so, um, do you feel like you have a competitive advantage? Uh, and if so, what is it? I mean, the obvious competitive advantage is that I'm mobile. So, the primary, the whole business model is that I come to you. The convenience aspect, the entire thing is oriented around the convenience. Um, my clients get to pick an actual time. So you know how when you book an appointment with someone else, typically they give you a window of time. You get to pick the exact time that I'm going to show up. So if I have a client, my clients know that if they have a meeting at noon, they can set up an appointment for noon. I'll show up at 1150 and get their keys before their meeting starts. And that's just a huge piece because a lot of people, it's, it's not even that, oh, I don't have time to get my oil changed. It's that, do I have time to get my oil changed? Right. Because they don't know how long it's going to take. Sure. So having to being able to pick that actual start time. Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, so my, my last oil change, unfortunately, I uh, uh, was told it was going to take about an hour. Uh, I went to the dealership. Uh, it took two. Uh, and, uh, and so I had to sit there and wait two hours for my car to be ready, losing productivity when probably you and I could have made an appointment and I could have gotten it done while I was still being productive and probably about a fourth of the time. That's the goal. That's kind of a no brainer. <laughs> so, uh, as we kind of bring our, our, um, interview to a close. So what are some of the challenges you've faced as you've grown your business? It's been an interesting one. So Google initially didn't allow me to list the company as an oil change company because I'm a mobile outfit. I didn't have a publicly accessible address. And so they won't allow a company to list themselves as an oil change company unless you have a publicly available address. So I, I found uh, partnered with a executive office suite who allowed me to have that kind of, to maintain that customer experience. Cause I was concerned that someone would show up to wherever the company's registered. And then there would be no one there to say, Hey, this is what's going on. This is why it's not here. So that was a big challenge, and I finally got that resolved by partnering with an executive office suite. Um, also, just people knowing it exists has been an interesting challenge. Um, and like you said, you always say marketing is is a, is a new outfit's one of new outfit's weakest points, and that is a point we're shoring up shortly. Actually, I'm meeting with um, a SEO marketing firm on Monday to discuss numbers. Great, so that should be fun. Um, scheduling time for someone to come to you for an oil change is just not how people tend to think about it. Um, so it's been interesting trying to reorient how people think, cause we'll get a lot of phone calls off of Google and they'll be like, Hey, I'm on my way there now. How, how, how long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? And so, you know, I pull up their vehicle and I give them the call, quote and everything. But I, while during the lull, while I'm waiting for the computer, I'll tell them, you know, just to clarify, you know, this is a, we're a mobile company. We come to you instead of you coming to us. 
um, is that is it okay? You still want to schedule an appointment? And they're like, okay, cool. Can you come out now? And I'm like, well, we do next day scheduling um, with availability, but we always have it. So, you know, it's 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 an interesting challenge, and people have to kind of reorient how they think about it. Yeah, I think uh, being on the on the front end of something like that, you know, people are so accustomed to going somewhere to get their oil change, so it is a little bit of a change of a mindset. Uh, so for, for those of our listeners out there that are overdue for an oil change, but just don't have the time to get to the, uh, location, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, Christopher? Well, to book an appointment, you can go to the website, pick your day, date, and time and fill out a little form. And that's all you need to do. And we'll show up on time at wherever you want us to, um, to get in touch with me. It's Chris at valet You can also reach out on LinkedIn and also phone number 470-228-9334. You can text, call, email, Facebook message, LinkedIn message, however is most convenient. Yeah, and the website URL is? Uh, com. Great. Well, Christopher, it's been great having you on the show. I'm excited about uh, the future of your company and, and wish you nothing but uh, continued success. Well, thank you. It was great being here. I want to take a minute and change topics here. And uh, there is a lot of uh, economic uncertainty going out there. And so in closing, I want to talk about red light bank words to watch out for. By the way, remember that commitment letter you signed a long time ago? Well, in a period of economic uncertainty, it might be a good idea to pull that letter out and reread it. There's some red light words that bankers use you may not understand. Uh, Four examples of these are covenant violation, covenant default, demand payment, and forbearance agreement. When a company borrows money from a bank, it's possible they have a cash flow covenant, which promises the bank they would maintain a certain amount of cash flow. If a company loses money during a recession and has a loss at year end, they may have a covenant violation of their cash flow covenant. The bank may put them on notice that they are in violation and both parties come together to determine a turnaround plan that's mutually agreeable. If a mutual agreement can't be reached, however, then the bank has a right to declare a covenant default and demand payment on the loan. This puts the borrower in a position of paying the bank off at the worst possible time. Neither the bank nor the borrower wants to see the business liquidated. Generally, that's a losing proposition for both sides. So both parties may enter into a forbearance agreement. A forbearance agreement is a legal agreement where the bank will delay or forbear liquidation in exchange for certain concessions. A few examples could be partial payment of principal, an increase in rate or fees, or additional collateral. These circumstances may or may not come into play, but your banker is quite familiar with these terms, and I've found many business owners aren't or don't fully understand the bank's rights or their rights in these situations. In times of economic uncertainty, knowing these red light words can give you some clarity on what could happen if the economy takes a turn for the worse. If you want to keep up with the latest in pro-business news, follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram at The Profitability Coach. If you want to listen to past or future ProfitSense episodes, you can find us on ProfitSenseRadio.com. This is ProfitSense with Bill McDermott signing off. Make it a great day.